It's season two of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. This is the first of three episodes based on our interview with Columbus, Georgia native Carson McCullough Scholar and Major McCullough Center benefactor, Dr. Thornton Jordan. Thornton Jordan was born in Columbus, Georgia in 1944. Growing up in Columbus, he attended two of Carson McCullough's alma maters, Winton School and Columbus High School. He later earned a BA in English from Dartmouth and a PhD from Indiana University. From 1971 to 1994, he was an associate professor of English at Columbus College, now Columbus State University, where he taught American literature. Over the course of his academic career, Dr. Jordan co-chaired three symposia, one on Carson McCullers in 1987 and two on Columbus-born writer Nunnally Johnson in 1991 and 1997, respectively. He has served on many community boards, including Historic Westville, Trees Columbus, the Center for Learning Excellence in Highlands, North Carolina, and he is currently on both the History Committee and the Collections Committee of the Columbus Museum. In 1982, he was the winner of the Georgia Association of Museums and Galleries Robert W. Woodruff Outstanding Patron Award. In 2002, he was the winner of the Georgia Governor's Humanities Award. Dr. Jordan purchased Carson McCullers's childhood home, now called the Smith McCullers House, when it came up for sale in 1997. He then donated the house to CSU and was thus a central figure in the establishment of the Carson McCullers Center for Writers and Musicians, on whose board he has served since its establishment in 2001. This segment of the interview has been edited for time and content. Well, thanks so much, uh, Thornton, for agreeing to do this. I'm excited to be able to talk to you on the podcast. When did you first become aware of Carson McCullers? Well, you'll be shocked. It was pretty late. You know, I'm, I'm from Columbus, went to Columbus High School, went to Winton School, the two that Carson went to. Then I went off to prep school, college, graduate school, and I had never heard of Carson McCullers until I came back to Columbus in 1971. And the reason I heard of her then was Virginia Carr was a colleague at Columbus College, and she was about halfway through the biography, and she asked me some questions about Carson, and I had, had no answers, no awareness. So I just started reading her, and, you know, of course, was profoundly impressed with her with her achievement well what do you make of that i mean you grew up in this town she is i would say of the many artists and i want to ask you about that what do you what, what you make of the fact that columbus has produced so many i think she's the most famous what do you make of the fact that she was not someone you heard talked about or knew about well, i think there are two reasons you know she left early she was like 19 when she left columbus nobody had ever heard of her until she published the hearts of lonely hunter and around 1940. So there was no awareness that this was a burgeoning young writer who had great creative genius. I think that was part of it. Later on, when she, when she was known, you know, and she didn't have a great following in Columbus, some of that was just negative feelings, especially about reflections in a golden eye. But I remember asking, there was a newspaper woman here named Mary Margaret Byrne, who wrote for the ledger and she covered fashion and cultural events and I asked her once, why, why do you think there was such a, um, 
low reception, appreciation for Carson McCullers in Columbus. And she said, thoughtful people always appreciated her. But that was a small group. But out of that group, there was a group that went to New York for the opening of the member of the wedding. So she had her supporters, people who appreciated what she had achieved. And, you know, you made me aware of people like Max Goodley, who I didn't know about until you told me about him. And I think it's so interesting because you were telling me that she and Reeves and I guess Edwin Peacock used to ride bicycles out to his house. And when I read that section of Heart is Lonely Hunter, where Mick and the young man, Harry, I guess his name is, take the bike ride out to where they go swimming. I always feel now that that was partly based on that experience that they had of going out to Max Goodley's house. Probably so. He had a little creek behind his house and, you know, they would go skinny dipping there. And he had published a couple of things. He subscribed to Story Magazine. They talked literature all the time. And later on, he tried to train himself to be an artist. He took a correspondence course in drawing and painting. Right. And we, we have a few of those pieces. Right. We have some of those pieces at the uh, Smith McCullers house right now, thanks to you. What do you think is her reputation in Columbus now? What is your sense of it? I think it's very high. I think, especially since we opened the Carson McCullers Center, the kind of programming that's coming out of there, the exposure that's coming out, plus so many major figures are paying attention to her, doing films about her, academic symposia every year somewhere. It's astonishing. I mean, she only had, what, five works, and you'd think, well, we we kind of worked them to death, but people yeah. continue to find material there that they want to comment on. Well, and one of the things I wanted to ask you about was uh, the uh, symposium that you co-organized on Carson McCullers in 1987. Um, yeah. Could you talk about that, how it came about and, and what it involved? Well, it really was the idea of one of my colleagues, Keith Byerman, who was teaching here at the time. He later went on to uh, Indiana State at Terre Haute. He had a really good introductory book on African-American literature. He organized it. I was a co-chair. We, you know, we put it all together, got our guest speakers, et cetera. And then Keith left before, the, before we had it. So I ended up having to, to run the whole show. We had Ed, Edward Albee come to Columbus. We had Virginia Carr. We had David Diamond. We had some local people who had known Carson. We had Margie Sullivan, who, you know, we had worked on her for years, Norman Rothschild, other local people that we had on panels to uh, discuss her works. Now, you taught American literature, and I know that you had a particular interest in Southern literature, because I know that, for instance, you taught James Dickey. I, I had, as a graduate student, one of your former students, who told me about your reading uh, James Dickey's Cherry Log Road with them and, and how much it meant to her and so forth. And I know that you developed a real interest in Carson McCullers as a literary scholar and were particularly interested in her development of the theme of loneliness. So what do you make of that? in the work of Carson McCullers? Well, it depends on how, how deeply you want to go into this. I, I have my own take on it, but I've certainly paid attention to other theories about the origin of her loneliness. So give me an idea of how deeply you want to go into this. For instance, if you were teaching the work of Carson McCullers, if you were teaching, for instance, The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, what would you want your students to get about her development of the theme of loneliness? social isolation, as she herself called it. You know, of all the writers, Carson McCullers is the one about which I most frequently hear this response. Here's a writer who understands me. If you try to imagine somebody saying that about Flannery O'Connor, 
if you identified with a major Flannery O'Connor character because you thought there's somebody who understands me, I think you would be in danger of being dispatched before that story ended. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And it really doesn't seem to matter whether somebody reads McCullers when they're a teenager or when they, or they read her later in adulthood. Many have that same response. Here's a writer who understands me. So I think that's that kind of universal angst you know, everybody at some profound level feels alone. You certainly are going to be alone on your deathbed, even though you may be surrounded by caring people. There's this profound sense that we are individual. I think for her, I mean, there's a lot more to it for her. That is a chronic, deeply felt, insatiable neediness that I think comes out of her childhood development and expresses itself all her life. So she certainly had a good purchase on it. You have also studied closely and presented on the work of Nunley Johnson, and I think also Blind Tom Wiggins. Is that right? No, I'm, I'm not, not Blind Tom. I'm on the museum board, and you know they have collected a good bit of material about Blind Tom, but he's not somebody I've ever studied. No. But I have been on the stage before when you've presented on Nunley Johnson. Could you explain to our listeners who Nunley Johnson and Blind Tom Wiggins were? Well, next to Carson McCullough, Nunley Johnson's the only other writer who got national fame that came from Columbus. He's older than her. He was born about 1898. He went to Columbus High School, graduated not too long. He was in the Army briefly, but not too long after that, made his way to New York City. And he had a triple career. He was a bylined humorous writer for the Brooklyn Eagle. Then he had about 70 essays and short stories published in mostly the Saturday Evening Post and a few others. And then in the early 30s, when Hollywood was desperate to get screenwriters because Al Jolson's first talking movie had come out in 1927. They were hiring lots of writers to move out there. He moved out there, and in his career, he was the best-known screenwriter in Hollywood. He was involved in about 50 screenplays, including The Grapes of Wrath, The Three Faces of Eve. Jesse the Dirty James. Dozen was one of them, wasn't it? Yeah. The Dirty Dozen? That was one of the last ones. I've never yeah. had great admiration for it, but it's well yeah. known. And How to Marry a Millionaire. There's a great mm -hmm. picture of him standing between Lauren Bacall and Marilyn Monroe at opening night in Hollywood mm -hmm. for that film. That's who he was. And Blind Tom Wiggins was also a figure from Columbus. I think you're fi uh, you're, you're forgetting, by the way, uh, Augusta Jane Evans, who wrote St. Elmo, uh, because she was a writer <laughs> of National Promise. I mean, we laughed, Thornton, but, you know, yeah. I, I remember I presented on her. That's when you presented on Nunley Johnson. I think it was the uh, Georgia Writers Association. I'll have to confess she is just about unreadable to me. <laughs> I mean, I, I think of a remark that was made about the seduction novels in the 19th century, and they're all based on one formula. Will the redeemer redeem the seducer before the seducer seduces the redeemer? <laughs> and, right. and it's got this high Christian salvation motif that overrides the real excitement of the book is, is the possibility that the rogue is going to have his way. But I mean, her, her prose is just insufferable to me. <laughs> you know, I, I will admit, it's not my cup of tea. And I, I was reading it partly because I was going to be giving a presentation on it. And I, I'm, I'm sort of interested in things like that, sort of like 19th century poetry. You get too far past Whitman and Dickinson, and you're just wading through stuff. You know, you're not really enjoying it, or at least 
you know, yeah. maybe I should speak for myself, but that's the way it is. But here's a question that I ask all of my interviewees who are from Columbus or have lived in Columbus, because I sort of think, and maybe it's just, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but I sort of think that Columbus is special in the number of writers and artists and musicians, people like Blind Tom Wiggins and Darlton and Tarby and Ma Rainey and Alma Thomas and Amy Sherald and Bo Bartlett and Carson McCullers and so forth. Do you think there's something about Columbus that has allowed it to produce so many writers and artists and musicians? I think we should make you president of the Chamber of Commerce. <laughs> Again, maybe it's just me, but I, and maybe all towns of this size can, you know, have a similar record, but I don't think so. I think there is something about Columbus. Yeah, but, you know, there's another facet to it. If you think of Amy Sherrill and Alma Thomas and, and even Bo Bartlett, they developed as artists when they moved away. So Alma Thomas had no instruction in art. Uh, she came to that very late. I think Amy Sherrill had a little. Bo had a little at Brookstone. They had to go off to pursue their careers just as Carson McCullers did. But it wasn't unusual in Carson McCullers' time for people from Columbus to move to New York to develop careers. One of her childhood acquaintances, Ella Kirvin, there's a, a picture of Carson at Ella Kirvin's birthday yep. party. She went off to New York to study fashion design because her parents owned a department store in Columbus. There were lots of parents who saw New York as a potential for their children. So maybe that was partly it, uh, is that uh, it was a place that, that, as you said, parents felt you could leave here and go somewhere else. I appreciate what you're saying about the fact that they had to leave. In most cases, Ma Rainey, that's true of her too. Darlton and Tarby stayed here, I think, mostly. They toured around and everything. But, you know, I had Bo Bartlett on here recently, and he quoted a line, I think it was from Robertson Davies, let your root feed your crown. Yeah. And his point was that, yeah, artists like himself and others had to leave here to develop their art, but still they got something from having grown up here, you know, yeah. that fed that art. And he, he says, yeah, it definitely feeds my art. Two things. One is Carlton and Darby. I mean, they had this one hit uh, way down in the Columbus Stockade Blues. And think of it, it, it says yeah. way down in Columbus, Georgia, I want to be back in Tennessee. But of course, he's talking about trying to get out of jail. The famous remark, she said, is I have to go back home from time to time to renew the horror. And that's been quoted a thousand times. But yeah. in, in a lot of her letters, she talks about how nostalgic she was for home. And even towards the end of her life, you know, there's a lot of speculation that her loneliness was about ostracism when she was a, a young girl here. And she was asked about that end of her life. And she says, you know, that really didn't bother me. So it could have been she was talking from success at that point, or it could have been it really wasn't that big an issue. For her, I think her loneliness has had a different root than that. Well, you know, she has one story that is set in Nyack, and I think it's really interesting to me for that reason. And if you've been to Nyack, you can recognize, even though she doesn't name it, that's clearly where she's talking about. Guy works in Manhattan, and they live on the Hudson River. He even takes the nine bus, which is still the bus that you yeah. take from the George Washington Bridge uh, bus terminal to get to Nyack. And his wife is is an alcoholic, and it, it's very sympathetic to her. And one of the things, they're from Alabama originally. And this is one of the things that is, it's one of her problems, one of the sources of her drinking problem, is that she feels alone, and that she doesn't feel the sort of warmth in New York that she associates with home and the for, sort of connection to other people that yeah. she felt in, at home. So, I, you know, I wonder if that was something, well, I, I feel certainly that 
that is must have been something that Carson was in touch with. Again, I think that that loneliness, the root of that is so much earlier and so much deeper. I don't think it has to do with a sense of place. Not It's not about Columbus. It's about something else then. My take on it is that all her behaviors in all her relationships and her profound insatiable neediness, and I think the drinking is is one expression of it, of kind of a, an orality is, it comes out of her deepest sense of childhood, uh, which she, she wrote a, in letters about uh, many times. I'm gonna read just a little, a sentence to a letter she wrote to David Diamond, who has proposed marriage to her. Now that would have been an interesting dynamic. But anyway, she's at Yaddo and she writes this. During the past few days, I felt very much alone. Often the old terror comes back to me. I know I can never get rid of it. In such times, I don't know where to turn. I need so much. The few who can love me have so much patience. I need so much. I realize that in temperament and emotional stability, I'm like a child. Whether it will ever be different, I don't know. The craving to be reassured, the terrible need for love. She's saying that partly because she's turned him down on his proposal of marriage and she's trying to explain to him why she thinks it'll never work. But she gives an image of this loneliness. She says, in some unnameable way, I'm put apart. There are times when I have felt like a small child shut up in a dark closet and hearing the sounds of a party going on outside. That's one of her earliest memories and it's her most enduring image of the root of that loneliness, a small child bereft, set apart in the proximity of other people, but not a part of them. I, my, my speculation that that comes out of the deepest, earliest stages of childhood development for her. And it well, manifests herself all her life in this quest to find some outside person she can attach to that will fill that hole that will make her feel like a whole person. You know, that's so interesting, Thornton, because you were just talking about that photograph of her at uh, the Curvin girls' birthday yeah. party. You know, we have that on display, uh, right. several pictures from that from that birthday party. And Carson is the child who's not smiling. And I've had a lot of people comment on that. And I've had I've had a number of people who they'll they'll do the house tour and they'll walk around, and they'll look at it, and they go. Why was she so unhappy? And I said, what do you, makes you think she's unhappy? Because she's never smiling in all the, in all the pictures. No, and I sort of resist the, their, their sort of psychobabble interpretations you know, of that. I mean, I mean, maybe they're right. I don't know. But, but it, it, it certainly seems to support your saying that it was something from deep in her childhood. Well, uh, she looks miserable in that picture. And I've often wondered whether she were actually invited to that party or whether her mother got her invited and Carson didn't want to go. 
but she's yeah. really out of place. And it's funny you said that it's about her mother, too, because this sense of loneliness. And yet my sense is that she was absolutely doted on by her mother, especially. But even that, I, I feel like she had a pretty good connection with her father, too. Let me respond to that, because I've thought about this a lot. It is true her mother was ever-present. When Carson was away, they wrote to each other every day, and Carson destroyed all her mother's letters at the end. Now, it could have been just protection of privacy, but the effect was she rendered her mother mute. When David Diamond was in Columbus, I got to take him around to all the McCullough sites, et cetera. And one day I asked him about Carson's father. I said, you know, you don't see much mention of her in Carson's works or whatever. And he said, I had the same question. He said, I asked Bibi, her mother, once. I said, you know, you ne I never hear you say anything about Lamar. What was he like? And Bibi said, the man was mute. Well, that was the title, the first title of what became The Hearts of Lonely Hunter. My speculation is that, that her relationships later in her life, that profound sense of loneliness, it's a classic expression of what's called the ACOA syndrome, which is adult child of alcoholics. Alcoholic parents can be present physically. They can be attentive, often charming, but at a profound level, they are emotionally absent. And especially if they came out of alcoholic families themselves, they self-medicate against the fear of intimacy. And I think if that's Carson McCullough's earliest childhood memory of being a, sitting apart in a dark closet, bereft, I think it must have come from that she, she didn't have that reciprocal emotional nourishment so she comes out of childhood with a tremendous hole, seeking to fill it with other people. That brings up, my, again, my understanding, and you may know more about this than I do, is that when you talk about Carson McCullers' immediate family, they were all alcoholics. Every yes, one of them. It, it's true. And, and, and in Reeves' family as well. And sadly, in Reeves' family, there's obviously a deep vulnerability to depression. Four of his siblings committed suicide. Three of the four committed suicide before they were 40. And of course, he was suicidal, you know, and finally succeeded. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carson McCullough Center's weekly We of Me. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find more at McCullerCenter.org or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. This podcast was brought to you by Columbus State University's Carson McCullough Center for Writers and Musicians and by Columbus State University's Recording Studio. The music you heard during the intro and outro was written by Lilia Uge in honor of Carson McCullough's 100th birthday on February 19th, 2017. I'm Nick Williams, technical director for these podcasts, and I hope you have a great day. The text of Thornton Jordan's reading of the letter from Carson McCullers to David Diamond is in the Columbus State University archives. The music you heard during the reading was Contemplation by Henrietta Renier, performed live in Legacy Hall by Sarah Hancock on November 21, 2020.